You're listening to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network. So, with that being said, I am here for a lot of studio today. Uh, today's a lot of studio experience is going to be a podcast discussion. This is for the Riverwise podcast connected to the Detroit is different podcast network. Uh, as we see, this is a cool, sunny day. Uh, we're going to work out everything. And uh, for those that are loving the sun and enjoying everything going on with Big Ma's Coney Cart, that is much appreciated. So we got the food vendors and a lot of people here definitely to enjoy that. But along with that, we are here for a big discussion. This big discussion is around something that's special during a local election year. This local election year, uh, as most times we say that it's pivotal to get out and vote, but more so than getting out and voting, we need to know what we're voting for and how what we're voting for impacts the different things that we're looking for. Uh, I would say just, uh, just in general as Detroiters. And this is a special podcast discussion because somebody that's been a friend to Riverwise and Detroit is different that does a lot of work in reference to the work of advocating for Detroit rights for citizens and so much more is here with me. Tawana, I know her as Honeycomb, but Tawana Petty, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Kari. Thanks for having me. Definitely, definitely. Let's turn Tawana up a little bit, Joe. You know she's going to get more boisterous anyway because <laughs> it always will be that way. But let's turn her up a little bit more uh, as we hear this. And today we're talking about the Detroiters Bill of Rights. The Detroiters Bill of Rights is something that I think is new to some, but very needed, uh, very needed as the ordinances, the laws, the, 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 the bylaws and everything that runs the city were set up. Uh, some of these some of these things were set up years ago. Uh, you know, when we think decades, you know, Detroit's been around for a while. But when we think about what represents what citizens want, especially in today, is needed and how we advocate for that is very important. So in this, the Detroiters Bill of Rights really talks about the rights for quality of life and how we can keep that quality of life. We're talking about water rights. We're talking about affordable housing. We're talking about uh, environmental rights. We're talking about immigrant rights and just things that should be for today that don't necessarily stand out for what was. So that's what this Detroiters Bill of Rights is about. Uh, and one of the people that lead the charge in all of this is Tawana, like I say, connected to the work. I know some, uh, she gave some information and we're going to have a discussion about where things stand on the Detroiters Bill of Rights, especially right now where we know the, uh, the Detroit City Charter revisions uh, is up in the air about that. Some of this goes right into to the new charter revisions and some of this is expanding upon what has not been said in some of the new charter revisions too so Tawana with that introduction how you feeling in reference to the Detroiters Bill of Rights thank you um, I'm, I'm feeling optimistic right mm -hmm. as you indicated a lot of these rights this was many organizations that came together over a, over three years really um, wanting to get the city's constitution which is the charter to represent racial equity uh, to free us from discrimination to ensure that we had true affordable housing and affordable water um, to make sure that uh, people had mobility rights uh, people with disabilities uh, transit rights 
lights, uh, just so many things that Detroiters, you know, depending on where you live, aren't experiencing. And so we came together with uh, City uh, Council Member Castaneda Lopez uh, and Sheffield and um, and really pulled together some policies and some charter revisions uh, and, and participated in that very lengthy, sometimes nine and 10 hour long meetings several times a week with the Charter Revision Commission to ensure that this city's constitution that is being voted, that we hope will get an opportunity to be voted on, has these rights enshrined within it. And so things like reparations, things like making sure the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History has funding and resources and that the community has a voice in the programming. Um, things like ensuring that affordable housing actually means the income of Detroiters. I don't know if a lot of people know, but prior to COVID-19, the median household income in Detroit was $30,000 per year. We're talking about a household. And so since COVID, about 40% of the residents have lost their jobs. So if affordable housing is taking into consideration uh, suburban areas, then it's not affordable for Detroiters. And so we're writing policy ordinances and things that would ensure that residents don't live in the two Detroits that we keep hearing about. So when we talk about the two Detroit's in this document uh, at the end that you gave, that's an overview of the process and everything. It, it keys in on a couple points. Right to be free from discrimination, immigrant communities and establishment of immigrant affairs. Uh, and this would even go to what's labeled as Refugee Affairs Commission, language access standards, protection of immigrant communities, disability communities and establishment of disability affairs, disability rights commission. Let's unpack all of these one by one. But let's start there with rights to be free from discrimination. What are some of the discriminations that people are facing that would be protected in the Detroiters Bill of Rights. Right. So these are setting up commissions that ensure that Detroiters who have suffered under drastic disparities for the last half century um, are land, land injustice, abandonment, disinvestment, corporate interests uh, taking over um, uh, infrastructure and businesses in the city. And it's an opportunity to have community members be part of the negotiations in the process um, and have advisory boards um, and opportunities to be in front of city government before they sign contracts um, and sign these different agreements. Uh, we've seen things like the community benefit agreement uh, that was supposed to really benefit community members be kind of uh, usurped by city officials who wrote their own version of it. And then now a lot of community members are realizing that their interests are not being heard when businesses come into the community. Mm -hmm. And so right to be free from discrimination um, is racial, racial equity. Um, you mm. would think in a city that's 85% black that there wouldn't be racial inequity but if you look at who gets to own the businesses who gets to, to know when land is available who gets um, the first uh, opportunity um, at uh, just business opportunities finance opportunities how the schools are invested in and all these other mechanisms that come in place to ensure that we stay um, uh, at, a, at a poverty rate um, with disinvestment abandonment and, and really a racially inequitable narrative that we've suffered under for a half century um, it allows for opportunities for the communities to be at the table, physically at the table and have a say in how their communities are being invested in. All right. So you're talking about the say about how our communities are being invested in. That is unique when we think about a lot of people that may feel as though Detroit is a black city. 
Detroit has been a black city. Uh, and, and the people that are here for now, I would say definitely my lifetime, but, you know, maybe six, seven generations in that leadership. How is, you know, how, how are people facing racial inequity when, you know, most of the city is black? You know, this, this is an argument that I'm sure is brought up. Yeah, I mean, well, we've never had a black governor. Mm. Um, <laughs> so you got to look at legislation beyond um, just the local officials. And that's not to give any of them um, uh, an escape, right, from mm-hmm. their responsibilities. Uh, you know, I like to think of Nora, uh, Zora Neale Hurston when she said all skin folk ain't kin folk. So you got to think about what people's priorities are um, and, and follow the dollars, really. And if you follow the dollars and you see, um, it, look at this charter proposal fight currently right now with Proposal P. We have community members standing up coming against a document that many have never read. They never participated in any of the community meetings that happened for over over 200 community meetings over three years. And now we have folks that are being organized by um, legislators to come up against the the, the the will of the people, essentially. And so, yeah, um, it racial inequity is structural. It's, it's spatial land. It's infrastructure. It's institutions. It's not just the, the color of the people's skin who have political power. All right. As that, thank you so much, Winston. Let's see. We're getting, getting assistance from Winston in here and production. Thank you. Production. Thank you so much. So um, as we as we look to the disability rights that exist in Detroit. And uh, so much of this, uh, as we know, Baba Baxter, uh, a friend of Riverwise and a lot of the social justice circles uh, has enlightened me about so much that does not exist. Uh, how it, how does this play a role when we think about entering into a constitution like it, of Detroit? Like, does this need to be there? Uh, but what, what needs to be sanctioned? And then if more commissions are made made, uh, what differences will be made in the quality of life for people that are struggling with disabilities as right now we're seeing disabilities is not just what we perceive as only physical, but also what's recognized as mental as well. Right. And chronic illness, right? Mm-hmm. We have a lot of residents who suffer from chronic illnesses that can't even afford the medications they need to live. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a disability rights Commission is thinking about those things. And so one thing that I'm really proud about with the Detroiters Bill of Rights is that folks who are really representative of these uh, rights that we're talking about are experiencing those living experiences. So we had the disability rights community draft the language for these policy. People who suffer from water shutoffs drafted the language around water. People who suffer from housing insecurity or have been unhoused drafted the language for right to housing. And so the folks who are most impacted by these systems are the ones who know how to tell us what they need. And so they were instrumental in drafting the language that goes with this Detroiters Bill of Rights and ultimately into the revised charter. And that moves us into something that's always very pivotal in the city of Detroit, and that's right to water. Um, And so many water shutoffs that were happening before uh, COVID-19, but even to this day, and it's unique when we think about water shutoffs and the right for water in the city of Detroit, because uh, not paying your water bill can lead to a foreclosure on your house. You can lose a home. And uh, your children. Yeah. 
Yeah, Definitely. you can lose your children. Yes, that is, uh, so it's key when we think about this right to water. Uh, what in this will exist that does not exist now? What, what, what's being advocated for from this work uh, in this Detroiters Bill of Rights? So currently we have water assistance plans, which frequently run out of money. Mm-hmm. So um, one thing that a lot of folks don't know is that Detroiters pay retail for the water that's right here in our backyard. And the 150 plus municipalities that l- use our water pay wholesale and their municipalities mark the water up and then blame Detroit. Mm-hmm. Oh, the reason why your water is high is because Detroiters aren't paying their bills when really they pay wholesale. So if you walk into the store, you know, if you go buy in bulk from the wholesale market, you're going to pay way less than you pay if you go to a retail store that's marked it up. Well, Detroiters are paying a markup rate on water. And so we're trying to get water that's truly affordable based on the income of Detroiters. That doesn't currently exist. Our model um, that organizers and activists um, like Michigan Welfare Rights, the People's Water Board Coalition, the model that they drafted for water affordability has been adopted all over the United States. But it's not being adopted in Detroit. And that is typical. A lot of times we advocate for policies that are equitable and other communities say, wow, that's a truly good policy. And then they implement it. And then the majority black city is unable to implement it. And one thing we like to tell people all the time, this narrative is if they just pay their bills, their water will be on or they're making my water rates go up. Think about it. If we allow a person to pay what they can afford to pay, that means many more people will be paying into the system. But if you don't allow people to pay what they can afford to pay, those who can't pay just won't be contributing to the system. That has an impact on the infrastructure. That has an impact on whether the water is clean and quality. Because if you have houses that are in the pipeline that their water is shut off, then that leads to things like poison water or um, toxins in the pipes. And so we know that if we allow people to pay what they can afford to pay and we have a really adequate assistance program that ensures water is not turned off, then we'll minimize health impacts. We'll Mm -hmm. minimize. We have like the largest hepatitis um, outbreak in, in one of the largest in the country because of lack of water in Detroit. And a lot of people don't know that hepatitis A. And so what was really unfortunate when COVID-19 really ramped up in Detroit and like 90% of the people that were dying of COVID came out of Detroit in the entire state of Michigan. We we literally had to fight for an executive order through the governor to get them to stop turning water off during a pandemic at a time where everybody on every station was saying you need water to minimize this pandemic. And we were begging city government and and the governor and the state of Michigan and all legislators to stop turning water off months into the pandemic. Just think about that. All right. So getting this on paper, though, getting this into uh, the constitution of the city, getting this into the charter of the city, uh, what changes in reference to that? Because for those that have looked at the city charter uh, in it unpacks, um, it's many commissions, many departments, and a lot of those departments and commissions are definitely being run through the executive branch. So is this something that will be led through the executive office? Will people have a say into the people on this commission? How 
How do you see that looking? What will it look like in reference to just the functionality of already how much of the Detroit city government functions? Yeah, I'll use a perfect example. And one of the reasons why this is being fought so hard by our mayor and our governor is because the revised city charter minimizes some of that. Um, what's the word I want to say? Kind of, kind of a, the way our city government functions now is that the mayor makes a decision and everyone who's in lockstep with the mayor upholds that. It's a uh, so, top down leadership. It's top down it's, leadership. It's a mayoral. It's a heavy mayor form. Yeah. Uh, meaning that the mayor for every department commission has so much of a say in, in, in who's going to sit there yeah. and the city council kind of functions in a legislative way and appropriations to, to decide where money goes and, and possibly what an ordinance looks like but from the reference of like having a say and a check and balance on the mayor there, there isn't one is not. there isn't one and a lot of folks didn't realize that our our as a one perfect example is that for a period of time our chief of police was our deputy mayor mm -hmm. so then if your chief of police is your deputy mayor who is holding your chief accountable when there where there are issues within the law within law enforcement that's one example and so it took a lot of social justice organizing and activism to remove that and those are things that are in a revised charter do not allow a chief of police to be a deputy mayor um, move the civilian oversight body that's supposed to be oversight and ensure that we all have equity law enforcement and non-law enforcement remove them out of police headquarters currently our civilian oversight body uh, has formed former law enforcement officers and they are housed inside of police headquarters. That is not an equitable body that's going to oversee whether there are issues within law enforcement. So within a revised charter, we're trying to make these bodies equitable, ensure that folks are elected and not just appointed by the mayor, ensure that if you are supposed to be an oversight body of a particular entity that you didn't used to work for that entity mm -hmm. um, and so many things. And so we're trying to amend these boards so that they are more equitable, have more community voice and can actually do work. So w within water, it's prohibition on shutoffs, affordable water rate at 3% of household income, advisory oversight, permanently funded assistance programs. Yeah. So this this is something that you think is going to be a. Um, a, a, a action that the executive body or the legislative body will have control over or would this be something where citizens will be appointed or by these people or will they run for these different bodies and commissions how do you see this yeah so it's a balanced uh you know mm -hmm. there will be some elected and some appointed um and what we're trying to do with the water is just ensure that there is always funding to so that detroiters don't have their water turned off no resident um, benefits from water shutoffs, whether you can afford your water or not. Outbreak um, for children in, in schools, um, health impacts in neighborhoods, things like pandemics, um, hygiene, like there is no benefit to anyone having their water turned off. And so we want to ensure that not only is there are there is there a commission that's going to ensure that there's always funding so that folks don't have their water turned off, but that it's capped the amount that you can um, have taken out of your 
the amount of money that you pay is capped on your income. And so if you're making a lot and, and you know what, we know with the pandemic, there are people that were making really good money that are not making money at all right now or not making good money now. And so these are folks who a year ago, two years ago, may have been saying, well, they should just pay their bills. And now they're hoping for some support. And so we can't think about things from our comfortability and like how we're experiencing systems. We have to think about the larger picture and what impact having a neighborhood that's disinvested in where people don't have access to adequate housing, where people don't have affordable water, what impact that has on our entire community and whether our community is able to thrive. And we also know uh, safety is a major concern for our communities, especially in Detroit. But we know that safety is increased when quality of life is increased. And so we're hoping that these types of resources and rights enshrined in the city's constitution really uplift the quality of life in the community, thereby reducing quality of life crime. So nobody's going to be trying to knock you upside the head for potato chips if they can afford to pay their bills and have adequate housing and are able to thrive. And so that's what we're hoping to do with the city's constitution. Definitely. Uh, Now I have to ask this uh, as a person in Detroit, affordability, what what will that be looking like? Because many Detroiters, um, many Detroiters, if if they file a tax return, uh, do they file their city taxes? Are they paying their city taxes? Like, what will that look like as far as the determination of how much money I make on paper? Because, you know, as we know, it's all across the board. I mean, we have a former president that on paper, I don't know, We no one knows how much he made or did not make. You know what I'm saying? So like, what will this, you know, what will that look like uh, as far as to make that determination of the amount of money? Well, I mean, we're going to go on paper. Nobody's going to, you know, come look what you got on, under your mattress, you know? Okay. <laughs> so we're going by what's on paper. And, you know, I always tell people, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to, to see what a thriving, vibrant community looks like. Just drive 15 minutes outside of Detroit, right? You don't see drones. You don't see police on every corner. You don't see surveillance helicopters. You don't see flashing green lights. You don't see, you know, surveillance traffic cameras. You don't see all these things. But what you do see is resources. You see vibrant parks. You see um, uh, investment. You see infrastructure. You see accessibility. You see all the things that we're literally begging for in Detroit and you see a quality of life and you see a minimization of crime. And so we're, we see the roadmap and the formula in all the communities that surround us. Which that goes right into that right for safety, right to safety, I should yeah. say. And uh, last interview we had uh, almost like right before everything in the pandemic really ticked up. Yeah. Uh, was really about your work when it comes to the public surveillance and the facial recognition technology that exists throughout the city of Detroit that's extremely, extremely very prevalent. Uh, Many of the stop signs, stop lights, uh, all the cameras, uh, the green light program, a lot of this. So like, I, I, I really want to read this out for this right to safety. Demilitarization of the police, ensuring that chemical weapons are not used on First Amendment protected activities, restriction on surveillance. So that's including facial recognition and related surveillance technologies. It will also require Detroit City Council to implement an ordinance on future surveillance tech. 
restructuring of the Board of Police Commissioners, the Civilian Oversight Body, strengthening boards of powers, removing appointments, and preventing former law enforcement from serving on the board. As when we really think about that right to safety and public safety yeah. uh, during an election year, yeah. when we think about it, it's been such a, a hook year to year of public safety, public safety. People want to feel safe. Right, absolutely. Uh, and, and they want to be safe. And, you know, you turn on the news, especially in Detroit, every night it's some tragic story of like, man, you know, shot. Like the context is very short, but like in 45 seconds, you know, man shot, woman shot on what side of town? We know it was in Detroit. This is dangerous. I don't feel like it's safe. I'm willing to now want to protect whatever I need to protect because now I'm fearful. Yeah. You know, Um, so when we look at this right to safety, as opposed to fighting against crime, which I feel like is the approach right now mm-hmm. of of the city of Detroit. Yeah. And it's criminalized many citizens yeah. uh, for that lack of quality of life, like, I, like you just spoke to. But this right to safety, mm-hmm. expand and speak on that first just from your works view. And then let's get right into the Detroiters Bill of Rights. Yeah, I mean, so it, it anyone who attends the Board of Police Commissioners meetings or listens in on the crime reports or any of those things knows that the $40 million that we've spent, our law enforcement has spent and our tax dollars have been spent on surveillance has not created safety in our communities. And so I would prefer to actually be safe than to have the semblance of safety. And so um, we, I, I push back against the conflation between surveillance and safety because I know what creates safety in our neighborhoods. We have a campaign called Green Chairs, Not Green Lights. And it's literally saying, come back to the front porches. See your neighbors. Don't watch your neighbors. See your neighbors. We have so much technology that's teaching us how to profile and predictive police and criminalize our neighbors but we don't see when they're struggling with water shutoffs we don't see when they're about to be evicted from their homes we don't see when their children are starving but we watch when we think they're doing something that we don't like and that culture has to change if we're going to have a safe community we're going to have to see each other and stop watching each other and stop tracking each other and that is really something that we have to invest really some time um, and some listening into because what has happened is we have defaulted to surveillance on every level and like we've secluded ourselves behind our infrastructure um, and hope that some of that suffering that's happening outside our door doesn't make it to our front porch and the reality is people not going to suffer outside your front door for long they're going to make it to your front porch if they think you're eating and they're starving and so how do we minimize the starving how do we minimize the trauma and ensure that everybody in our community has what they need to survive and that that's deep as you know you you've hit me to more information about it as um i have my current camera system and the first thing you said was is that a ring system because you know these ring lights are everywhere which i have an independent camera system which is unique for most people it cost me a little bit more but i just trusted the guy to put it up right but uh most people don't know the ring light systems are the government agencies have access to that yeah. so when i say government agencies and corporations have access to that and corporations meaning that uh, that ring light on your house at your door that can be surveillance against 
whatever they perceive as crime. Uh, you know, it was without a warrant. I might yes. add. So, you know, you can say, I don't, I don't want to give up my, you know, say one of your relatives does something that, you know, could be considered. Yeah. Yeah. Does something in your car. Exactly. If that insurance company decides that they want to get access to that ring footage, they could go straight to the corporation and get that ring footage, you know? So we're opening up a door to give away our biometric, excuse me, but the, you know, this technical term, but the biometric surveillance, Uh, a perfect example is Detroit just signed, um, a contract yesterday for 50 two days ago for $50,000 for brief cam brief cam can track any object throughout the city at any point. So if they attach the camera at one of these poles and they think you might be the person who did something, then brief cam, wherever it's attached can follow not only your license plate, but you and your body, the way you walk, the way you move throughout the entire city until they're done deciding that you're the person that they're looking for. And so we We've created a situation where the residents in the city are under a perpetual lineup every day, all day when a crime is committed. And so we also know that face recognition and these biometric surveillances misidentify darker skin tones. Detroit is a city full of darker skin tones. So we don't know how many people have been arrested and just plead out or sitting behind bars that didn't commit a crime, but have no idea why they've been arrested or what led to their arrest. And that is one of the key uh, arguments against a lot of the technology because uh, usually in our society, the idea is like, it's not me, it was the camera, it's not me, it was the computer, but the computer's getting a lot wrong, especially when it comes to black and brown people, yeah. uh, that the facial recognition technology is not identifying black people at a level that it, it connects and I want to give a lot of love to Joy Boylamwini, Tim Nick Gebru, and Deb Raji, who had groundbreaking research called Gender Shades, three black women who did the research to identify that this face recognition technology was misidentifying darker skin tones. And their their research has gone global. It's being referenced all across the world. And so I want to lift them up because they did the work to prove that this technology, well before there were misidentification cases, that it would happen. And Detroit boasted the first two known misidentification cases in the United States and we're confident that there are many more. So Detroiters Bill of Rights, this right to safety, what does that look like? Because I believe my whole life, actually even Coleman Young's first campaign was was about public safety. I mean, it it was like on two fronts. It was like I'm going to fight against the person that wants to commit a crime against you and I'm going to fight against the enforcement law enforcement officers that are brutally attacking Detroit citizens. So what does that look like in this document? Yeah, I mean, the right the right to safety, you know, I mean, I'm an abolitionist at heart, so that's a whole nother document. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but right to safety doesn't abolish police, right? Right to safety demilitarizes police so that we're not having tanks and, and, and toxic sprays and all of these, you know, very violent weapons leveraged against protesters, as an example, as we saw uh, last summer. But right to safety is investing into those mechanisms that re- that increase quality of life and removing things like mass surveillance 
surveillance face recognition that are going to drastically criminalize black and brown communities more prevalent. Um, I'll tell you, there's been 20 cities so far in one county that has banned face recognition outright, and they've all been predominantly white because they understand that this technology is is violent and pervasive and it's accurate on on white communities. So they want it out of their community. And really, we're just asking for the same type of humanity in Detroit. All right. Right to Recreation, Establishment of Recreation Commission. As we know, many recreation centers uh, just are not open like they used to be. Yeah. Uh, some of this argument, I, I really feel that the biggest challenge when we think of the city of Detroit is that the capacity is, you know, at, at one point, two million people were here, you know, and and the numbers dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. I mean, it's hard to believe that even during Mayor Kilpatrick's time, it was close to about a million people. And that number drastically goes down. So when we think of right to recreation, back up now. what what are we looking at? What what does that mean? How is this a part of the charter? Uh, what does recreation even look like moving forward? How how do we um, how do we have a a a a space for what recreation is as time moves forward? And just you know, young people, uh, yeah, young people connect differently. I mean, you see you see. And, and like I said, in more invested in communities, you see these many opportunities for young people to have recreational activities, green space, vibrant parks, um, just just pl- places for them to let off steam and do what they need to do. Even if it's, you know, riding an ATV or or any of these other things that young people like to do to just be young and, and, and enjoy the, the, the environment. And Detroit doesn't have a lot of that. And so we're looking at a commission that's going to ensure that there's greens, adequate green space, adequate adequate parks, adequate recreation for this vibrant, you know, 50,000 school age young people who live in Detroit who don't have much to do. And so when you see the not having much to do play out into other types of activities, that's when we start to see those young people you know we don't we, we don't see them when you know when they don't have anything to do when they're starving when they're when they're lingering about trying to figure out where you know what kind of activity can I get into today where's the parks where's the recreation center that has internet where's the recreation center that has all these other activities but if they find something else to do that uh, that disrupts what mm-hmm. we feel is our quality of life is technically more older people um, then we start to see that they're being, you know, uh, these um, menaces to, to to our quality of life. And so we're trying to get a commission that's, you know, intergenerational that can offer up some suggestions on how we can create a more um, equitable neighborhood and community for our young people to have a place to be and exist and thrive and grow. And, and as we think of that in recreation, I'm going to say, uh, let's see, Wendy, Gigi, or Christian, I want to get some more pictures out here um, because this is kind of that vision of it, uh, of us and the crowd and everything, because this is one of those visions. Yeah. You know, uh, I see most of the people have made their way to the shade and I feel that. <laughs> I, f- I feel the shade visions. <laughs> if you guys can figure out a way to use these umbrellas, uh, feel free as well. But um, when we think about uh, when we think about what that recreation is, what that looks looks like how that feels um and let's see um 
we're seeing I, a lot of it like downtown now, right? Where you know folks can go skate or do all these other things. But but if you go in through a lot of our neighborhoods, mm-hmm. um, young people don't have any. There isn't anything, and not just young people, all ages. There isn't much to do. Um, yeah. In a lot of the neighborhoods in Detroit. And it's almost like they're just left there, as one of my comrades would say, to suffer under quiet desperation. It's like people mm-hmm. just hope you just stay put and and don't make a lot of noise, you know. Um, but then you're, you're seeing a lot of what can be considered acting out by younger generations because they feel invisible. And the only time they become visible is when they do something that communities feel is disruptive. And in that whole idea of disruptive, as we talk about it, one of the things that Suzanne wrestles, we've been going with these umbrellas all day, but uh, she was like, man, they got a basketball court like right in the middle of your street. It's almost like not even enough uh, street to play basketball. She was like, that looked like me. And I was like, no, they just some kids playing. But, you know, they're they're making way and making do of it. And Lord knows, like, yeah, I agree. That's that is uh, that's going to be a very physical game of 21 that they got to be playing because it's not enough room. Right. But when we think about this, yes, that backyard court, that uh, a full court, a playground, a place where they could play would definitely be utilized and something they would want to take advantage of. Absolutely. And and making that a priority as the rec center. is a space to truly socialize. As, I mean, I kind of looked at school as a place to socialize, which people say, you know, you're not supposed to socialize so much in school, but, you know. I have a whole conversation about that. But, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> the school, factory setup that we school, that schools are functioning under. But rec centers are built on socialization, making friends, play. Yeah. It's, it's built on that energy that, yeah. you know, that school it's you know you still want to learn something but that fun and that creativity that focus that build that dynamic creates things like this you know at one point in time as you all see that post it's rusty but that was my backyard basketball rim a long time ago and and it welcomed community into my neighborhood most of the kids came into my backyard and we you know play pickup games you know and that was something that was special so I do think that right to recreation is big Mm -hmm. but as much is that's big one of the key things and elements when we think of Detroit resources it is the housing stock absolutely the land bank authority owns so much property in the city of Detroit and that's even connected to I want to say that the city of Detroit and Detroit Public Schools mm-hmm. own so much property throughout the city of Detroit mm-hmm. and what that means and how to utilize these spaces mm-hmm. that can sometimes be labeled as at one point in time, this would have been considered a vacant space right. that I'm utilizing. Yeah. These homes can be used. People need houses. Mm-hmm. There is a strong homelessness population here in Detroit yeah. of people experiencing homelessness. Yep. This right to housing, truly affordable housing based in Detroit is serious. It's very serious, yeah. And I mean, a lot of people, people hate for me to say this, but I just have to be real. You know, I I remember back under the Obama administration when Gilbert went to the White House and had the hardest hit funds diverted from keeping people in their homes to like the land bake situation because there were properties that he was interested in. And so money that could have kept community members in their homes and minimize the eviction problem uh, was was taken, was taken away. And so then we learned that 600 million that Detroiters were mistaxed 
overtaxed by over $600 million and thousands of people lost their homes and that has not been rectified. So now we've been given, we've been given a gift of of $500,000 over 10 years uh, from Gilbert. You know, it's weird how things work. Now Gilbert's giving $500,000 over 10 years, um, but you have to literally be starving and on your last bean to be able to qualify for it. And so you're mistaxed by over 600 million. Thousands of people lose their homes and then you're given 10 years, uh, a 10 year gift from money that was taken and you have and you barely can qualify for it. And so, I mean, there's just so much red tape and, and politics in the in the infrastructure in the city. And it's very clear that there is this um, pursuit of getting rid of the undesirables, the quote unquote undesirables in the city for new investment um, and new residents. And with that comes more policing, more surveillance surveillance, more criminalization. And, and and when we think about the housing stock of what Detroit has, mm-hmm. it's very unique. Yeah. Uh, like the home there, my home there, um, that brick home, and, and we go through these neighborhoods, you see these brick homes that at this point, you know, it's, they're not going to be built again. But even yeah. through fires, through water damage, through no roofs, no, you know, you, you see the structures of these houses throughout communities that are still standing up. Yeah. So it, it's more than just when we think about what this housing stock means. It's that, you know, when you when you when you when a person leaves a home because they're not paying their water bill or they're overtaxed on their assessment or they don't want to lose their children. So uh, they up and leave. They don't want to lose their children. They leave. What happens in my neighborhood is now this house goes to the land bank authority, which has so many properties. The land bank authority is not keeping up with these properties. And what and a lot of people know, a quality infrastructure like your home, it takes less than three years for that building to become blighted and almost dilapidated. So rather than have somebody living in the home who pay, who's paying what they can afford to pay, we evict people, yeah. put them on the street, leave the house abandoned, allow for it to be stripped, and then it becomes a blight. And that blight that, that formula is ridiculous. And that blight welcomes in a lot of some of the other things that we're talking about as far as some of that safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, one of the reasons... Uh, one of the reasons experiencing a break-in in my house and I thought about it I was like man I really didn't have my lighting right I didn't have everything else right but then it was across the street before both the properties across the street from me were uh, were torn down and it's funny the lady that used to babysit me was one of those houses Miss McAfee's house uh but that house, you know, when that vacant house exists and it's stripped, it welcomes in a different energy to that same block in that neighborhood. Whereas if a family, if someone would have been living there, yeah. then it actually keeps the community safer. Yeah. The residents want neighbors to be there. Exactly. As opposed to the land bank owning all these houses or banks owning these houses or some investor from China or Israel or Brazil or some places not in Detroit that's not living in the house. Right. An occupied house actually helps a community more than anything yeah a lot of people a lot of the blighted houses honestly in detroit were held on to people who left detroit decades ago they just kind of left them here detroit is kind of the place that nobody really looked back on they allowed the properties to be dilapidated and then when the new energy the detroit is coming back energy which which i always say is the same as make america great again but when the detroit is uh coming back energy came back it was like oh let's go see 
what's up with that house that we've been sitting on for four decades. Mm. You know, and so because Detroit was like the blank slate place that people just kind of didn't care about. They drove here uh, for maybe sporting events and went somewhere else. And then Detroiters were left to hold up all of this infrastructure and land. And we don't actually don't get the benefit of that. We don't get acknowledged for trying to hold a city together that literally the entire state walked away from and disinvested in. And so much of this even goes into the water because like you say, when when Miss McAfee's house is torn down and then uh, Miss Teresa's house is torn down, now the water that flows through and the pipes and the structures, I mean, we're, we're sitting right now, everybody I'm looking in the crowd, you're sitting on where two homes used to be. You know, the twins stayed here, Big James stayed he, in this other plot of land. You know, these, and, and what was there and the roots, the ground, the, the electrical, the plumbing, all of that's there, which actually puts more strength, it puts more strains on the infrastructure coming to my house. Right. Yeah. Because it was not meant to, you know, do erratic, I guess, like, you know, sporadic, you know, water here, not water there, not water there, then water there, then water here, then not water there. Like this actually makes it more difficult on the city, period. And that's why this right to housing is so difficult to understand when you see the homes that people would want. And you also see people that want a home, but this connection is not being made. We have more, we have almost twice as much unoccupied housing as we have unhoused people in the city of Detroit. But we have now created a culture where folks would rather see people on the street than in a home because there's a mentality that, well, if I have to pay my bill, then they have to pay their bill, whether or not they're able to pay or not. It's not thinking about what a village could look like, what the fabric of a neighborhood could look like, what a, what a house, fully housed community could look like, what wraparound services could do for a community in a neighborhood. We've literally created a culture where as long as we're okay, it doesn't really matter what's happening to those folks outside of here. But that is not a formula for a safe community. And It'll that, never be yeah. a formula for a safe community. Yes. The more I, I want more homeowners, I, I want more people that, that will be here. Um, tragic uh, Mrs. Kraft at the home where I'm looking across like this is my neighborhood for real you know she passed away at 98 wow. so uh, her family's you know seen some of the things I've done cause like you know people are like oh you did your roof mm-hmm. I wanna do my roof exactly. you know Miguel's like I'm gonna do my roof and then yeah. the Krafts are like now nah, I'm gonna do my roof like right. I think that the community will mimic the different things as, as people stay but we want the people here yeah. as opposed to just saying alright I'm, I'm, I'm gone you yeah. know grandma not there no more I'm out right you know we want that community to stay which actually brings in another one of the key elements why many people leave yeah. right to access and mobility low yeah. income fare creation of motorized non-motorized transit plan yeah. strengthening the transit advisory commission to add transit driver to the commission so like we we really definitely if, if anybody's ever taken the D dot or as I say the freight you know I mean the Finkel stops right there at 12th Street uh, you know I've, I've definitely jumped ship a couple of times but the reason so many people turn it down is because past experiences they've had yeah. now in uh, one of the projects I did a couple years back uh, the busing system is definitely a lot better now I mean there's the mobile app you can track when the bus is coming right. but it's not to the point of convenience 
kids in a city that is so sparse and so spread out where you can get to where you need to go all the time yeah yeah and yeah, I mean I when I was catching the bus for a long time I, I just got my first car that I've had in 11 years <laughs> uh, in September so um I was catching the bus for a long time you would be you would be on the road desolate not knowing when there's going to be a bus coming you know mm-hmm. is there going to be a bus coming and if you're catching at five or six o'clock in the morning um you may or may not have anyone around you and so um just creating true affordable transit and making sure that there is more accessible transit yeah. and that people with disabilities can get on the actual bus there are a lot of buses that won't done, don't, don't even accommodate yeah. wheelchairs and, and I, I would look at it uh in my bus days if i wasn't taking the woodward grand river grass shit or the seven mile, maybe eight mile bus is like, okay, I, I, I may, I may, I have to time this out right. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and, and when we think about this in, in the nuances, like we say, like, like for most people, if you had to take the bus here yeah. to connect to the Finkel, if you're coming from the East side, I mean, technically it can be a quick ride depending upon where you're coming from the East side, but you know, that may be four or five connections. Those four or five connections may not connect at the right time. Right. And, and in other cities, when we think of going to uh, you New, know, Yorkers. New York, Denver, yeah, Chicago, D.C., DC mm-hmm. uh, many of the other cities, the public transit actually provides another access point for people to engage and connect. We suffer because we're the Motor City and there was a concerted effort to ensure that people bought cars. And so we didn't get the investment in our transit system that a lot of places did but it's time for us to realize what what situation we're living in what the income of Detroiters are and the lack of access to a, you know real mobility that residents here have and so we're hoping to get a commission to invest in that type of infrastructure definitely definitely now um, I, I've had a lot of questions uh, we've shared a lot of things I don't know if we have some questions from the audience I know we have some semester in Detroit students and Craig sitting here looking at me he's <laughs> about to turn around and look at you guys as you all eat your conies like you better have a question <laughs> so i don't know if we have some questions but we're available for a question i believe uh christian has the microphone i'm sure joe yeah that definitely means it's on we're gonna turn that off for a second because joe gonna need to come back before we get to those questions um within that uh we definitely want to uh we definitely want to get to what you have about the detroiters bill of rights uh but the document that i was reading we have many copies of this so uh even for you all that are leaving if you all are interested in this document you can get this document uh that i'm reading about you know how this Detroiters Bill of Rights came about, how uh, it, it lifted off the ground, the execution of it. Also, we have some Riverwise magazines as well, but this information is vital when we think about the local election that is coming up. Uh, so, with that being said, we're we going to wait a second for that. But uh, I do want to say one more sure. thing. So, proposal, so the Detroiters Bill of Rights, a lot of it is within Proposal P. There's a very heated debate happening about Proposal P right now. Right now, it's in the hands of the Michigan Supreme Court. And no matter how you feel about the charter, the revised charter, no one should be advocating for our right to vote to be stripped away from us. 
everybody should have an opportunity to vote on what goes into our city's constitution. There is a very there's a global effort to disenfranchise the vote of black and brown communities. And it's very important that we stand up for the right to vote on every level across the United States. And so whether you agree with it or not, you should have the opportunity to vote on it. It's very important. Okay. Um, which as, as we wait, uh, when we think about, when we think about this work moving forward, uh, and, and the group and the organizers connected to this, uh, do you all, are you all seeking roles in these commissions or what, what does that look like? Uh, will that be implemented? You all see like immediately, what does that look and feel like? Yeah, there's a lot of folk. Well, first, we, we ha- it has to get on the ballot, which okay. we're praying for. And then once it gets on the ballot, then as those commissions start to form, then we'll start to try to run candidates for each of the commissions. Or, um, or there are some folks who are already interested in those commissions and already doing that work and just want to codify mm-hmm. those roles within the city's constitution. Okay. So so this work in organizing will carry on oh, absolutely. from this vision. And then also, if things need to expand, I'm guessing that things will need to expand or or change as well. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. So this is all just some. And I'll finally say the narrative right now is that this is like a billion dollar annual undertaking. And it's really not. We the the revised charter commission had a financial assessment done. Sorry, U of M, but by Michigan State. Um, But they had a financial assessment done. And we know that this is like a seven million dollar annual cost, whereas the narrative that the mayor has put out and the governor has ran with is like billions of dollars of investment. And it's not billions of dollars of investment. And so they're trying to leverage the senior community against us, saying that this is going to affect pensions. They're trying they're throwing anything at the wall to disenfranchise us because there's a fear that some of the powers, the top down powers that currently exist will now be moved into more of an equitable in the hands of the people type of infrastructure Mm. in the city. And so it's very important that we put accurate information out there that we know what this really is going to cost um, and that we do not allow for anybody to disenfranchise us and our right to vote. Mm. That's deep. That's deep. So uh, now we got Joe back. We have uh, our microphone going. I don't know what questions we have uh, from the audience. But if we have a question, we'll take a question from the audience. If not, we'll we'll end up closing out soon. We got a question from Mr. Hart here. One of the people that helped everything come together. All right. So with um, black investment, black small businesses uh, faced with some of the things you said about safety and that kind of thing, how, how do you encourage black families to remain in Detroit rather than to move to Southfield, Troy, wherever you might suggest as a safer kind of place? Is there... Is there a way to say that we can do something different, better here? There are opportunities that uh, you don't see, but here they are. So that it's it's a uh, it's a great choice to stay here and do something. Or if you have the money, find a way to sponsor someone else, and so they can live in a home. What are what are ways that people who are just 
sort of trying to make a living, trying to make their business go and can't sort of save the world, but they could see themselves here uh, as, as a great choice for themselves and their family. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the average dollar in Detroit only stays in Detroit for about six hours. Um, and so even the business owners aren't spending money in Detroit. And so, you know, it, it, it's really a lot to expect um, a community to be vibrant and thriving when dollars aren't circulating in that community. And so um, one of my comrades always says it's better to be an inch wide and a mile deep than a mile wide and an inch deep. And if you create and circulate the dollars right in that vicinity, that neighborhood, and you create trust in that community, those community members will look out for your establishment. But if they have a sense that you just come in here to, to extract resources, aren't investing in the community and going back to wherever um, you might live, then you may not get the same quality of care from the residents who are suffering all around that business. And so um, we've seen very successful uh, small businesses who are protected even in most dire circumstances because the neighborhood understands that that's a fabric, that's a part of the neighborhood and that there's a mutual respect and investment in that neighborhood. And so it really is a culture shift um, that we're looking for. And I think that as we understand uh, how quality of life issues affect quality of life crime, then we'll start to see a ripple effect, right? It's like the mycelium under the earth. You'll start to see a ripple effect very rooted and it'll spread out to all the neighborhoods. And we, uh, you know, we're hoping to get like small models that we can then use to leverage um, and replicate throughout the neighborhood. But we know it's not going to be overnight. We didn't get here overnight, you know, but um, but I'm very optimistic. And I, I think that when we think about how we look at it um, a lot of this is it's a lot in media of of what crime is um, I, I believe that American society is very violent uh, I, I think that it's always been very violent so I mean just being the you know when, when we think about guns and, and guns existing and guns being one of the most American tools there is um, so so the narrative of criminalizing what a Detroiter is, especially being a black man, uh, the criminalization of what that Detroiter looks like versus the context of really what public safety looks like. So uh, like I often get like, you know, you have all this equipment, you're in the middle of the hood. Are you afraid of where, where things come from? It's like, you know, I take my safety precautions, but I also I also think that, you know, Crime itself is very interpersonal. Crime is very intimate. Uh, it's not as erratic as like movies make it seem. It's not like you're just walking down the street and people are jumping out the bushes and, and hitting you and attacking you with a billy club. It's usually people that know things. It's frustrations uh, coupled with a lot of that, as we say, the lower quality of life. It's, it coupled with a lot of the the, the traumas of and in, in anxiety of, of being in survival mode of not having that heightened quality of life can trigger so much of what can come out as violence but under that it's a lot of other uh social dynamics of 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 unfulfilled potential and opportunity that just doesn't exist here so when you understand the context of of, of what that is and then learn the culture and can respect the neighborhood the people 
things move differently, you know? Um, so when, when we, when we expand and, and, and go deeper on a lot of what can be looked at as violence or crime, but can paint that full picture, we have a better understanding of how, why, what, who, and, and, and where, as opposed to like in that lens of that 30 seconds of what, you know, you get from two, four, seven of just making it seem like, wow, people in Detroit are just, you know, going crazy, you know, uh, taking people's gold chains for no reason, you know, whereas the reality of, uh, of, of what's happening and how in the families um, and just even the neighborhoods and that lack of opportunity has a whole lot to do with what I believe is labeled as crime. And I think a lot of what is labeled as crime is truly something of misunderstandings, uh, a lot of interpersonal relationships, a lot. And when I say this, a lot of domestic violence on all ends when it comes to the family dynamic and when it comes to relationships. And I don't even think that this is just a Detroit problem. I think that the challenge is an American problem. It's just that in the city of Detroit, the way we deal with it just due to the lack of resources is that it doesn't come out uh, as, you know, it, when this happens in Gross Point, because of attorneys and other resources, it's, it's kind of, I don't want to say swept up under the rug, but it's not going to end up on the news. But this is something that's very American. So we have to build bonds, connect in community, build relationships to change and shift this narrative. Yeah. And I really hope folks read the um, what I what we distributed, because it does talk about that half century narrative that has plagued Detroit, you know, for so long and the psychological impact that growing up in a community, going to school in a community and seeing yourself represented your entire life in one way dominantly how what psychological impact that has on you and then if you couple that with lack of resources then sometimes we become the thing that we've been told we are you know and so there you know it's not by accident and so if you can push back against those dominant narratives and re-spirit young people within the school system and in the communities to understand that they're fully human from the time that they're born and then you wrap around services and resources you're going to create a vibrant thriving community but if you disinvest you dog in the media and you abandon um, and you only see those young people and older people I'm not just saying young people but if you only see those people when they become a menace to your quality of life then you're you're not going to be safe you know and so there are ways to create safety you folks are safer when the people around them feel seen yes and you know? and that can completely and I really mean this like it can completely change the dynamics events like this change the dynamics um, of how the community looks even today handing out the door the door hangers like as 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 we start knowing one another a whole lot more everything everything changes and it's important to know that as these changes happen um, you know, our communities feel safer because it no longer is who are those kids in the middle of the block? It's like, hey, Tony. Right, exactly. Yo, please do not throw that football <laughs> on my front porch. Right. You know I'm, what I'm sorry, saying? Mrs. Such and Such yes. or Misters. Yeah. Yep, yep. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what other questions we have. Uh, if we have another question. There you know all right so we'll we'll get these two questions and then uh then we'll get over to some uh to some blues hi good evening 
evening. Evening, evening. All right. Um, I guess I want to ask, so the prospect of more green spaces is definitely exciting, but I, I know that the field of urban planning and what exactly is a green space is like super white, right? I'm wondering how you think Detroiters can assert their own agency in determining what green spaces work for their community and which ones don't, and especially how that can work with the commission. Absolutely. That's why we're hoping if we can get it um, enshrined in the city's constitution, the hope is that we, it can be representative of the residents here um, and that community members can be talking about their specific neighborhood and what their specific neighborhood needs are. And so that's why we're hoping to get it enshrined in the constitution, get folks to um, go to these community meetings, because we don't once the once it's voted on, if you know, I'm just I'm just claiming it right once it's voted on and then we'll have to have those community meetings to establish what that would look like but um there's much more language than is identified in this document um but we did think about those things um just like with affordable housing and stuff like that on its face you would think oh affordable housing we have affordable housing but if it's if it's looking at incomes of a hundred thousand dollars and the median household income here is 30 then that's not affordable housing um and so we're, we're we did drill down on those specifics to make sure that community members have a say for their specific neighborhoods or districts or however the neighborhoods are divided um, and they can make that determination. All right. So we got our last question here. Oh, uh, hi, everybody. Um, so I guess I've been really intrigued by the conversation today. And um, it was mentioned earlier about, you know, the council serving as more of a uh, on a more legislative move or steps, um, if you will. But, um, you know, getting more involved in the community is super important on the ground level, because to me, I'm a strong believer and it starts at home. And, um, you know, sometimes people don't feel like superheroes or feel like they can do a lot just from the stoop so I guess how can you share more insight with us as a community as how as the everyday person or individual or um, just regular person can um, serve as a you know an agent of change should we go to more council meetings should we speak out more on Twitter should we do more parties that speak about these things so on and so forth all of the stuff you just said but <laughs> not but no, you. Uh, so, so one of the reasons why we have like green chairs, not green lights, as an example, um, is because we know that community members are the front lines of the change in our neighborhoods. And so, you know, um, a lot of people look at that like, oh, green chairs, not green lights. That how's that going to counter surveillance? Well, if we have more community members seeing each other, sitting on the front porches, turning to one another, having deeper conversation, then it counters the need for mass surveillance in our neighborhood. And so, like these really grassroots models are really the strength of our communities, right? And so when we were doing this, the, the reason why I'm really proud of Detroiters Bill of Rights is because so many residents came together to put their input into what this document could look like and what the city's constitution could look like. And so we did a lot of door-to-door. -door. We did a lot of like podcasts. We did, we leveraged Riverwise Magazine and distributed that over the course of over a year with various um, 
uh, additions talking about Detroiters Bill of Rights. And so any mechanism of communication you have, whether it's you on the phone with one of your friends and you like, you know what's going, you know, we have an election August 3rd. You know what I'm saying? Like things like that. Like I'm talking to community members now who don't even know we have major primary election on August 3rd because we've just been enduring so much, right, with the pandemic, with uprisings and everything. But we have a major election August 3rd. So even if you can't get out there, I, I don't like to say front lines is just protesting, right? Front lines is talking to your neighbors. One of my comrades always says, like, get five of your friends and bring your passion to life. And so if it's just having table conversations with your friends and you're talking about what's politically happening in the city and what impact it's going to have on y'all, you're going to make an impact, whether you're doing something different in your household or in your family or you're doing something like Kari's doing, you know, in the community and bringing the neighbors together. But it doesn't always have to be city, going to the city council meetings or the board of police commissioner meetings. But being in the know is a part of being able to liberate yourself from systems that are harmful. And so having those conversations about the ways that you're experiencing Detroit, like is this, is Detroit showing up for you? And if it's not showing up for you, then what do you want to get involved in to help change that circumstance? Definitely. So with that, I definitely want to thank you, Tawana. Uh, you dropped science as you always thank do. You. Definitely give a round of applause. Thanks uh, for having me. All always. the work you do. Uh, definitely. Uh, and then also a heck of a poet, too. And <laughs> uh, very creative, too. Uh, and uh, just had a son that graduated yes. carrying on the legal. My new lawyer son. Exactly. Woo-hoo. Exactly. So I can only imagine <laughs> what what new protests and troubles <laughs> She's right. about to raise Mo Kane, you know? Yeah. So uh, right now we are going to pause for a moment before we bring on the blues act. Luther Badman Keith got some blues coming. Yeah. Uh, Give it up for Kari, y'all. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, it's some... You're listening to the Detroit is Different podcast network.